0: If you have your Bible, you can turn to Ephesians. We'll be there this morning. What what is it going to look like here over the next few weeks? What, What we're going to do is this morning, we're going to recap Ephesians in a nutshell. Put it into a sentence form, really. What is the book of Ephesians about? And then next week, we will bring in the race relations sermon that I did not preach in January. We'll do it next week. And the following week, we will begin a sermon series on Christ in all the Scripture. Um, we're going we're to have a, a set of sermons, an introductory sermon, and then a sermon series of six sermons from both the Old and New Testament, extolling the excellence of Christ from all of the Bible. And so uh, that's kind of where we're headed for the next Uh, Eight weeks, nine weeks or so, all right? So then we'll come back after that and finish the book of Ephesians. I know some of you are really excited about the end of chapter 6. It's a very familiar passage, but we'll be in that in about nine weeks, okay? All right, Ephesians. The letter that Paul wrote from a jail cell, and it is a companion letter, as we know, and I think Aaron mentioned, to Colossians. Colossians and Ephesians were written, if not at the same time, almost the exact same time. They cover the exact same material almost. There's very little difference between the two letters, except in the way they're organized, the way they're expressed. Ephesians is a letter written to the church of Ephesus in which Paul had spent significant ministry time. He had been there, he had helped plant that church, found that church, had left that church under the care of his most trusted son of the ministry, Timothy. Coloss, the church at Coloss, which received the Colossian letter, was not a church Paul founded. Paul had never visited those saints. But he had heard of their faith and was ex- exceedingly anxious to, s- to write to them and to encourage them in the doctrines that he held so dear. And so the two letters, one has, Ephesians has the feel of a letter to people that he knows and has a relationship with. The, the letter to the Colossians is not quite as personal Not quite as connected, possibly, but the same theological content, by and large. So we have these companion letters, both written in a jail cell, so they must be urgent. I mean, think about it. If Paul wanted to write a letter in jail, if the information was that important, this is is significant. This has led us to say that the book of Ephesians, unlike so many other uh, of his letters, the book of Ephesians is the crown jewel, so to speak, of Paul's letters. Now, in our day, Romans gets that fanfare in our circles. But the reality is that Ephesians, for all the, church of the, history, the church's history, has been seen as the greatest work Paul ever put pen to paper to write. Ephesians. This is a significant letter. It ties together some very deep theology with some very practical living instructions. If I wanted to give this a sermon a, a title... And it really is the title for the whole book of Ephesians. It would be Ephesians All Things in Christ for God's Glory. You know, as you read a letter and you, you read it over and over again, you kind of become familiar with it. And one of the things that has stood to me out off the page in the book of Ephesians is the concept of the unity that we have in Christ. I might surprise you at first because there's so many things, as I said, that people tend to focus on. And we're going to look at some of those specifics. But in all of those specifics, Paul is driving the the letter to the point of everything is in Christ being unified to the glory of God. Everything. So we start out by saying that God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. We live in a very fragmented age, a very broken world. Think about it with me, just all the parts of our lives. If you think about families in our day, so many of our families are broken. So many of our families suffer through divorce. So many of our children are being raised in single-parent homes. Fragmentation is the word we might use for the family. Fragmented, confused, separated if we move from family to society at large in the United States probably the most polarized segment in our history if you think about where we are as a people here in the United States unity is not the word of the day (laughs) as a matter of fact in in any presidential election in the last election cycles the, the, the determining factor of the election has been very small we have over 330 million people living in this nation and yet elections national elections are decided by those who choose to vote and can vote by less than percentage by less than 5% every time that tells us that we have a deeply divided nation a very deeply fragmented society And it's obvious, not just at the national level, but at the local level, if you read the Aniston Star, if you you look in the regional, if you look at our state, we live in a state of fragmentation, separation, disunity. Politically, socially, we are fragmented. Families are fragmented. We can go through and we can look at each segment of our society and see that things are divided. Not united. And yet I'm telling you that God's purpose in the world is to unite all things through Christ, in Christ, for His glory. And those are not, hear this closely, those are not uh, contradictory statements. It is not that God is hoping everything will be united. It is that everything will be united In Christ for God's glory. That's what the great letter to the people of Ephesians is about. In a nutshell, unity. How we are being brought into unity in Christ. So God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. We see this stated. I see it as the theme verses for the whole book of Ephesians in verses 9-10 through of chapter 1. Look with me at that, that passage. Making known to us... <clears throat> Making known to us the mystery of God's will according to God's purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Not not a hope, not a wish, but a plan. Speaks to an architectural drawing, very specific, down to the details. God is planning in the fullness of time... To unite all things in Christ. It's not a wish. It's a guarantee. He is going to unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven. We might call that the invisible world. And things on earth. The visible and physical world. God is going to unite everything. Not just what you can see, but what you cannot see. In Christ, for His glory. This is His plan. It will be carried out. It is His purpose, we might say. And so, we have this stated purpose, this theme for the entire letter. So let's break that down. Let's look at that together. Because how is God going to accomplish this plan? First of all, He has worked salvation in eternity past. Salvation is not something that occurs on a here and now basis only, but rather was planned for in eternity past, was set forth in eternity past, was accomplished for us in eternity past. How do we know that? Let's look at chapter 1 together quickly. Run down with me from verse 3, 4, and following. Look what it says Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has blessed us in Christ. With all spiritual blessings. So what are these spiritual blessings? He chose us in Christ before the world was founded. Salvation is an eternal act. It happened before the foundation of the world. Romans chapter 9 tells us, Before Jacob or Esau did anything, either good or evil, God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Before the boys did anything, God loved one and hated the other. Salvation is not something that's occurring only now. It happened and was planned in eternity past. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, He predestined us, to adoption so he's predestined us to be part of his family he chose us in christ and destined us beforehand that we would be in his family in god's family all right verse seven how will he put us in his family we are rebels and renegades we are sinners and we are filthy we are deserving of god's wrath how will he ever put us in his family Rebellious children, forced to sit at the table against our will? Absolutely not. He redeemed us, verse 7 says, by Christ and granted us forgiveness of our sins. It's not, it it is not that you receive that only when you came to realize that Christ was your Savior, but rather that God had planned for that before the world began. God had provided for that in Christ before you were ever born. And God brought it into reality in our day and time. He brought it into reality, into the physical reality in our day and time. And so, salvation is an eternal act. It happened in eternity past. So He elected us, He predestined us to adoption, to be part of His family through redemption and forgiveness. And ultimately, He will glorify us. And that's spoken of in verses Chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. He has glorified us, and He has sealed us through the Holy Spirit. And so, God's plan to unite all things is not just theory. It's a plan that He laid out and purposed and began to set forth in eternity past. Now, this kind of talk is not popular in our day because... Forces are at fo- a foot that you know nothing of. historical forces, we might say. The world was confused shortly after the Reformation. Our world was confused by two divergent m- movements within our faith. One was the confessional movement. The confessional movement was the movement of the reformers and it continued down through the ages even till today. We are a confessional church. Now to boil all of that down so that I don't bore you with history is to say that the focus of the confessional church is God's work in the church affecting the world. At the same time rose those who said, no, we're not confessional. We're what's called confessional pietists. The pietistic movement began shortly after the Reformation, one generation after the Reformation and it continued with deep roots even till today. What is the pietist movement? It is the movement that says what really is important is what's occurring in my heart. The, the, The emotion and the experience that I'm having In my own life, that's what really matters. Going to church doesn't really matter. Being connected to the body doesn't really matter. Being with me and my family and my friends, that's what really matters. That's where God really does His good work. What that's led to is a fierce individualism in our society. In our church society. Fierce. When you start talking about salvation in terms of the group, notice how people... Either become bored and disconnected or infuriated. Because for them, salvation is all about them. Salvation is an individual experience. Paul doesn't recognize that here in Ephesians, does he? God chose us in Christ. How did he do that? By his own sovereign will, he brought into existence what did not exist. He chose us while we were unworthy to receive adoption through the forgiveness of our sins. And we're all being united into one thing, into one body in Christ. And so this fiercely independent streak develops in the church in the West and it's persistent until this day. It devalues the experience of God's church throughout history. It focuses in on my experience in my life and my family. It's a very dangerous experience. It's a very dangerous experience based faith. I would warn you. Be careful. God set out about this salvation to bring things into unity in Christ. Salvation worked in the past and now has become A present reality. That's the second thing we see under God's plan to unite all things is that it is a present reality. Chapter 2 opens, now having taken this eternity past look, with the great contrast between dead men and men made alive. Verses 1 through 3 focus in on the fact that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. We are all walking according to the way of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's not at work in the sons of disobedience. We all live that way. We all, by nature, are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, in working out His plan for unity and bringing glory to Himself, takes those dead men and makes them alive. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, with the great love with which He has loved us, made us alive together in Christ. He made us alive in Christ. Notice, again, because we're driving this point of unity home, and I think it was near and dear to Paul's heart, notice, He doesn't just make you alive, but He makes you alive together. He made us alive together in Christ Jesus. God was building for Himself a bride. God was making for Himself a physical body on the earth. It's called the church. So yes, He chose you. But He never chose you to be you by yourself alone, but rather He chose you in Christ into the church. He placed you into the church. So we have this great unifying picture here. We see in this salvation that is present and real regeneration. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Dead men made alive. As Jesus says, you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven unless you be born again. Dead men made alive. People being born into salvation. Secondly, we see in this present reality of salvation that it is a gift from God. Verses 7 through 9. Look there with me. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Grace which brings about faith. Grace that brings about faith. We might say it's the grace in the form of faith. You didn't muster up the belief in this great plan of salvation, but rather God gave you belief in Christ. He gifted it to you. And so our salvation in present tense is a salvation as a gift. It also is a salvation that brings great unity. Again, this idea of unity, bringing all things together in Christ. Verses 11 through 22 detail for us how God saves people, places them in Christ, in the body, and now He's unified all those who are saved into one body. Let's focus in on verses 14 through 16. For He Himself is our peace. Christ is our peace. Who has made us both, talking about Jews and Gentiles, one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. You see the move to unity here? It's not just a spiritual unity, but it's a real unity. A real unity brought about and in, in exemplified in the church as Jews and Gentiles are being brought into Christ. One new body, one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And reconciling them both to God in one body through the cross. Killing the hostility. The message of Ephesians is that God is unifying all things into Christ. Not just Jews, not just Gentiles, but Jews and Gentiles into one body. One man. One new man. So, God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. We see this through salvation in eternity past and salvation in a, as a present reality. God's plan of unity displays the power of God in the church and is visibly on display for both the visible and invisible world. When the people of this world see the church, they see the only hope of unity in all the world. I describe to you the family... I could have described to you the economic and business systems of this world. I don't need to tell you that they're broken, do I? They're broken. We're experiencing the brokenness. Politics, friendships, no matter race and culture, no matter where we look, everything's fragmented and broken. And God is working out this salvific plan through Christ to put on display a visible unity. Where is it found? Only in the church. You may question, why do we have Race Relations Sunday every year at Grace Fellowship? Because, in a sense, the gospel is at stake. Why do we talk about the subject? Because it's near to the heart of the gospel. It's important that we realize that by being in this unity no matter what our mouth says about the gospel we are not living the gospel no matter what our mouth says our lives do not reflect the gospel and so it's important we take up these subjects like race relations or multicultural church so that we understand that it's through that visible display the unity between the races that God is painting the picture of his eternal glory in the church. Look what Paul says in verses 8 through 12 of chapter 3. To me, though I'm the very late least of all the saints, this grace has been given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Both the visible and invisible world see God's great plan in the church. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So we're being told by Paul that it is the visible church... We might say the church of the saints on the earth that is displaying the unity which God makes available in Christ and in Him alone. The hope of a worldwide united movement outside the church is a false hope. This world will never be made one outside of Christ. No political movement. No great leader. No family movement. No business movement. No cultural movement. No race relations program will ever bring this world into unity. The only place unity will ever be found in this world is in the church. In Christ. So. I might ask, as we finish the first half of the book here, when the world looks at you, and when the world looks at Grace Fellowship, do they see this great plan being unfolded? Well, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. I think that they do see the plan being unfolded. In Grace Fellowship. Is it perfect? No, far from it. We're not perfect. But in this church, in this small church, we see a multiple front of people. Educated, highly educated, high school educated, and everything in between. Rich and poor. Black and white and international. Is it perfect? No. Is it growing? Yes. How? Because of Christ. Because what's finally starting to happen in a place like this is people are beginning to see, we have very little in common. I hear people say that all the time. I spent so time with such- and-such last week. Yeah, how was it? Well, I mean, we really don't have anything in common. So we just spent our whole time talking about Jesus. It was awesome. We're going to meet next week. People are beginning to realize there's no unity in this world unless it's in Christ. And so far from seeing the differences as a negative, people are beginning to see the differences as a positive here. We don't really have a lot to talk about outside of the Lord. That's a positive statement. My heart gets excited when I hear that. And there's all these different ministries happening. And yet, they're all happening in concert with one another. It's be- this is the way I describe it in my own mind. God's church works like an orchestra. You know, a violin is a beautiful instrument. I love to hear great violin music. But if you put the violin in the orchestra you have a much more magnificent sound than if you just had a violin. So what God is doing what I'm telling you in these first three chapters we see God uniting all things all types all kinds all colors all cultures all languages all things in Christ what he's doing is building an orchestra. He doesn't want violins he wants Violins in concert with percussion and string and whatever else. I'm not good at that. Woodwinds, there we go, and brass. <laughs> he wants an orchestra. And here's my hope to you God will conduct that great old orchestra. Some of you may be so frustrated with a lack of unity you feel and you see, I want to encourage you, God will conduct a masterpiece through eternity in an orchestra known as the church, his bride, his people. And it will sing to his glory forever. So don't give up. Don't use your tiredness as an excuse to quit. Some of you need to call the person you called two weeks ago to hang out with that turned you down. You need to call them again. You're ready to give up. It's like, well, they don't want to hang out with me. I'm done with them. Aren't you glad God's not done with you? Keep knocking on the door. When it slams, pause, pray, and knock again. Why? Because the gospel gospel is preached through that unity. And God brings us that unity through Christ. Now, I want to move to the second half here as we finish. Having laid down deep truths, Paul then turns those truths into practical application. So God's plan to unite all things in Christ. Secondly, we see God's plan to unite all things in Christ, transforming people into His image. And that's what happens in chapters 4 through 6. In chapter 4, look at verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Unity. Unity. You see it? You read through Ephesians, you don't necessarily notice it. You start focusing in on the key verses and chapters, you start realizing this is what he's hammering. Jointness, unity in Christ for his glory. That's the picture of the church. And how will that happen? Through the various gifts and giftings of God's people. That's what happens through the rest of chapter 4, verses uh, 12 through 16. The body is being built up as God has equipped each of you differently for different purposes, but for one grand purpose, which is that the body be one and built up in love to the glory of Christ. So this unity practically leads to sanctification and the building of a body for for Christ on the earth. So we find unity in the body of Christ, and then we find unity in our relationships one to another. That's chapters 4 verse 17 through the end of the chapter. The rules for living with one another in community are laid down for the purpose of unity. That's their purpose. It's just normal relationship that's supposed to occur. This is the way relationships work, Paul saying. Because you both are in Christ, now you don't speak harshly to one another. You don't steal from one another, but you work hard. You build one another up with edifying words. Don't speak things that tear people down. You see, what he's talking about is unity. He's not talking about do's and don'ts as much as he's talking about a body. You can't function as a body if you're constantly ripping one another to shreds. Love one another. And this is what love looks like. That's chapter 4. Chapter 5 moves further in that regard. Verse 1. Therefore, imitate God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So we imitate God in love. Knowing that our salvation is secure from eternity past till eternity future. We trust one another to live in love As Christ has loved us. The old man is gone. He's replaced with the new man. The actions that were once acceptable are no longer acceptable. Because we've become partners with God in this ministry of reconciliation. That's chapter 5 at the beginning. And then the key verse of 5 is put for us in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ so he has said unity is my purpose and it will happen in Christ and he spends three chapters building the theology and he immediately turns then and says the church looks like a unified body though it's diverse and it's gifting because it's all being used to build each other up into Christ into the image of Christ People in the image of Christ don't tear one another down. They speak kind words. They don't get angry. They work hard instead of stealing. They live in love as Christ has loved them, submitting to one another out of reverence for their Lord. And this is how the whole thing ties together so that he can then put his second picture forward. The church is a picture of God's plan of unity and marriage and family relationship is a picture of God's love for His people. Whatever you've learned about marriage, family, and business relationships over the last months, if you miss that point, you miss the point. The purpose of your marriage, the purpose of you as a child to your father and your father to a child, the purpose is not that you're a good daddy, nor that you're a good son, nor that you're a great husband, nor that you're a glorious wife. The purpose is that you exemplify to the world what relationship with God looks like. So the world can look at the picture of the church and say, there's God's plan for unity. And And the world can look at the family of the individual Christian and say, that is a picture of the unity that Christ brings. If you missed that, you missed it. How does that happen? Through submission. Everyone everyone except God the Father is submitted to someone. Was that clear? Because I I want to make sure you understand that it's not women's role to be submissive. It's all of our role. Why is Paul not a chauvinist? Because he's an equal opportunity offender. It offends everybody for him to say, Everybody is submitted. How does submission look for each person? For a wife, it looks like the church submitted to Christ and His headship. To a husband, it looks like being submitted to the role of, of living a Christ-like leadership, servant leadership over his family. Paul said it in, to the Corinthians like this. The woman is submitted to her husband, and the husband to Christ, and Christ to God the Father. Everyone is under submission. That's not for women only. We all are submitted. And so, as the wife looks like the church submitted to the headship of Christ, the world sees that and says, that's not normal. That's not this worldly. That's otherworldly. Something's going on there. I want to know about that. And as a husband, instead of being an authoritarian and a dictator in his home, servant, as a servant, leads his home, sacrifices and lays down his life for his home, gives himself 24 hours a day to his family and his home. The world looks at that and says, that's not chauvinism. That's something else I don't recognize. Tell me what's going on here. And as children submit to their fathers and fathers submit to loving their children, the same thing dynamic happens. You cannot preach the gospel and not live in godly family. If you preach the gospel and don't live in godly family, your words fall on deaf ears because you look like the lost world. The only hope for showing unity is in the church and in the family. And it's interesting to me that God, only God could do this. The church is made up of what? What's the church made up of? What? Families. So if we want to show the gospel, we have to have godly families. If we want to have a godly, unified church, we have to have what? Godly families. So godly churches are made of godly families. Godly families make up godly churches that preach the gospel to the whole world. And the gospel goes to every culture and every tribe and every tongue through the vehicle of this unity that we find. Which is why I believe he ends this section with a message to slaves and their masters. The most difficult relationship is not that of a husband to her wife or a wife to her husband or children to their parents nor the parents to their children. The most difficult, strained and seemingly humanly impossible relationship in Paul's world was what? Slaves and masters. That's why it does no good to take that out. And dummy it down and water it down. And make it about something else. If the gospel is true, then slaves can willingly and lovingly obey and follow their their masters as unto Christ. No matter what the case is. No matter how abusive he is. No matter how unjust the system. He can do that because Christ is in him. And no matter the pattern set for slave owners in the general world, Christian slave owners will love their slaves as Christ has loved them, understanding they both serve one master. Never assign away, never allow people to hand you a watered down version of chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 saying, well, it's really just business owners to their employees. No. Paul wrote this for slaves and their masters. And if it's true there, then surely it's true in the business world that we live in. The gospel, you say, how powerful is the gospel? It overcomes all barriers. Even the barrier of slave to his master, master to his slave rightly lived out, the gospel affects and impacts everything in our lives. Everything in our lives is transformed through this powerful message. Which leads us to the last part of the book. The very last point. Which we will take up in the weeks to come. Which is, now we are unified in Christ as a church, as families. So we might fight As an army. If you want to defeat an army, a great army, you take out its leader. You kill the leader, the army falls into disarray. We've known that for years. We've known that for centuries. Why? Because when just war principles were written, in how you conduct a conflict on a battlefield, officers, higher-up officers, were not to be the targets of attacks. Why? Because if they're attacked, the army will fall into disarray. If they die, the army will fall into disarray. And they will pillage and rape and kill and steal, and it will be total chaos. So there was rules to warfare centuries ago that you did not target the leader. Satan never follows just war policies. So he attacked the leader. He killed Christ through the hands of lawless men. Little did he know, because God had planned, he brought his own doom. He brought his own defeat. So he moves. He can't win the ultimate war. But in these little battles, what we see is he attacks repeatedly against leadership in the church, in the home in the culture what we're going to spend the last part of the sermon series on in Ephesians on is that war how do we fight this war what is this war what is going on in the invisible world to attack our visible world so we've got to hold that thought for nine weeks eight weeks and then we'll come to it